I'll be too nervous to. I'll probably lost the words. to another edition of the Lost Words podcast. I'm joined as ever by Jason. Jason, hello. Good evening, Tom. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thank you, mate. It's another another excellent interview we've got ahead of us. Um, we're joined today by Megan McLaren. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to uh, nice to get on and do something different. Yeah, it's nice. I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, you'll be saying it's that different. now. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely different. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Megan, we, as much as people would follow you on Twitter and as much as, you know, around the, the golfing circles, I'm sure you're very well known for writing the blogs that you do, which you're obviously massive fans of. But but more importantly, beyond all that, you've had, uh, you know, an excellent career to date. Um, so I think the, the, the first thing I want to do is kind of get started as to how you got into golf. I know that the, the very easy thing is that, you know, you were very young when you started and I'm pretty sure your, your family were golf mad. Um, but how did you start thinking that it was actually going to be a career for you and and something that you would really want to pursue in the future yeah I mean you pretty much explained the first part for me <laughs> um I I was very young like just from as early as I can remember really golf was a part of my life like both my mum and dad were very good golfers and and their families played as well so um that and Newcastle United were were the two things that I grew <laughs> up with and yeah. I just like I I can't really pinpoint like, you know, a, a turning point to this is when I knew I was going to kind of do this as a career or when I significantly improved. It was more of a gradual progression for me, um, just kind of working through the different different stages like county golf and then up into the England system and things like that. But I think whenever I got called up to like the England women's squad, because I'd always been, I think, a little bit on the fringes. Yeah. Um, and whenever I really started representing England properly, I think my practice changed quite a lot. I became a lot more disciplined and um, I think I started enjoying the that process of it a lot more as well, like really understanding how to improve. Um, and I think that's when the first seeds of, you know, this is, I enjoy so many aspects to this that it's something that I can see myself doing for, you know, for the rest of my life kind of thing. Yeah, I can imagine, um, the, 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 sorry to jump in, the, the, the routine of, of an England setup. I mean, did you have a golf coach before you went into the England setup? Yeah, I mean, I was I was very lucky whenever I was young. Um, I was a member at Wexham Park in Buckinghamshire okay. before I moved to Northampton. Um, and I had a couple of great coaches there. And the golf club itself was just incredible for kids. Like, I mean, I like rolled around in my Newcastle kit half the time I think <laughs> um, which like you know at the time I wouldn't have been aware of you know at all but obviously now I'm the age that I am there's a lot of conversations around things like that aren't there with you know should there be dress codes at golf clubs and what should kids be allowed to do you know should they have to be a certain standard to to play on on the main course and things like that but I think I got very lucky as a kid that I was well looked looked after and and enjoyed it from an early age which maybe stopped me from from leaving the sport before right. i had the chance and, to really improve and uh, you know we've spoken to, to to hannah from from national club golfer before and she um mentioned that she found it really hard to get into into golf um as a youngster and she you know she really enjoyed it she was really good but she faced a lot of backlash at the golf club a lot of 
men were, you know, unsupportive. A lot of boys at her age, you know, didn't accept the fact they could lose to her and were quite mean to her and horrible. Did you face any of that? I mean, it sounds like you had quite a positive experience growing up and, and maybe that was beneficial to your development. But is that, do you think back now, is there any times that you felt there was any opposition to, to girls in golf? Not not whenever I was young, which obviously to me, I think is the most important thing. I think I, I started to notice it more as I got older and as I moved golf club um, to like a slightly more private club. You know, I was I was at a public course that was, it had, I think, two nine-hole courses and one 18-hole course. And it was just, you know, open to the public, like good driving range, summer junior camps and all that kind of stuff. And like I... I was on the putting green with, with a ton of lads, you know, whenever I was like, I guess, eight and nine years old. Um, and it didn't feel strange to me. Like I was a bit of a tomboy, um, but it just, you know, I never, I don't remember having any problems. Whereas I remember my sister who's five years younger than me yeah. when we moved to a different club. I remember her winning the, either the junior, it must've been the junior club championship, I think. And she walked out of the clubhouse with the trophy and with my dad. And one of the members, sort of an older lady member, walked past her and said, you need to go and have a look at the dress code. Your shorts are too short. Yeah. And it's just like, God, she, like, she just won, like, you know, a big, a big tournament. She's only like 16 or something. Like, that's not how you keep kids in the sport, is it? You no. know, and our, my experience has been very different and I've been very very lucky but I have seen you know I've seen the the other side of it as well how how much is it because it you know it it's boys and girls of a young age particularly that that seem to face battles with dress code and I think the more I go around golf clubs they're getting relaxed a little bit but certainly the ones that I've I've worked at in the past and certainly ones that I've played in that they're very very strict to the point of you know certain color socks and suit and ties in the clubhouse and, and things like that how big of an issue do you think that is going forward that that needs to be overcome because i I guess there is still principles of golf that we should keep and i think that there is an element of it that is you know it is it is a respectful game but i think that ultimately if you want to to groom people for the future and and encourage them you certainly need to start relaxing certain aspects of it yeah i think i think for juniors it's massively important to not strangle them you know with with rules whenever they're that age and they're they're just picking up a sport and you know it's great to for them to be in a sport you know and not you know especially in this world that we're living in at the moment like the the more kids you can get involved in the sport like golf the better and the last thing I think you need is is for them to go home and say like look I've been told I can't play because I don't have the right you know the right things on yeah um I do like I do agree I think golf is a a game of respect and and values and integrity and certain things need to reflect that but I don't I don't think it's too difficult for you know junior club organizers to sort of have a you know you can have a conversation with with all the kids at a point in time and say like look this is this is how they dress on on the professional tours you know these are the the kind of smart smart things that we expect you to wear going forward but and, i mean do you really need to have that conversation before someone's no. like 16 i like i personally don't think so uh, it shouldn't be the thing that you're worried about 
and I think that's a really good point. I think that's probably the only time I've ever sort of it's always been a focus of it's always been quite discouraging. But I think the point you make there that you could actually just let it go for a certain amount. Sixteen is a great cutoff point. Like okay, now you, you've been able to get away with this certain dress code and this certain these certain rules until this point. But going forward, this is how the game of golf is and certainly if you're going to professional games certainly you're going to high level um you know amateur stuff this is this is how you're ex- expected to behave how you're expected to dress uh, and maybe introduce it softly as opposed to just really discouraging people at six seven eight years of age yeah and i think even like at junior level you know you start if you as you get good you start to represent the club in things yeah. and that's that's a good way to say like look we have a you know like a club club uniform sort of thing or a club kit like this is and you can start to to be influenced by things like that rather than have it forced on you the second you step into a step into a golf club and that's it like the way you frame it there like you a young child i used to coach football and and they're so impressionable that if you know 8 10 11 12 years of age if you said to them like this is what we go to wear to represent the club and you know, everyone's done it as they've grown into another. They'll take a lot of pride in that, and they'll be like, "Look, look at the kit that I've got." And I know that, I guess, the concern with that is is having to buy it all and fund it all. Not everyone can afford to do that, etc. But if if you put that kind of positive spin on it, it can actually be a good thing and something that they will grow up appreciating as they get older as well. I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Jason, I know you wanted to talk about uh, Megan's transition from uh, you know the early junior career up until uh, Florida and, and college and things like that. Yeah, Megan, your first blog, um, March, uh, was it March 2015? Something like that. March I'm already impressed that you found that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, do you know what? I've got to be honest. I found one, we won't, just as an aside, I found one of the posts and I thought, this is this is the way I think anyway. The way you write is the way I think about life anyway. <laughs> so it really appealed. And like, I'm halfway through them. I haven't read every one, right? Because I've got to do this three times a week and other stuff. Yeah, but I keep giving it too much homework. But... Anyway, your first blog, um, you, you obviously you speak about going to Florida at eighteen. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but in effect, you're an adult at eighteen over here. Um, yeah. As you rightly say, you're old enough to drink in this country. You go off to Florida, um, where obviously you can't drink, as an example, until you're 21. And your question is, when is someone when um, can someone be considered an adult? And then you go on about being taught and learning things and, and, and the relationship between yourself and tutors and things like that. Um, yeah. Did the blog start as a sort of outlet for your frustrations? Because it, is, you know, cause it seems clear to me that you've gone over there, you've left your family behind. I want somebody to talk to. Here's the blog. <laughs> yeah, I obviously didn't have enough friends. Ah. I, um, <laughs> but no, I think that blog to me will always, like I'll always remember that one and why I wrote that one because... I thought about starting a blog for a while and I think that's just because I'd become accustomed to writing you know like I was studying English in college and I think I started to realize that that was a good way for me to kind of make my thoughts a bit more cohesive um and I definitely struggled with that that concept of you know that particular example probably makes me sound like an alcoholic but (laughs) that that's like the perfect example of how you're treated differently in one place to the next regardless of the fact that you're the same person and like the more I thought about that the more it just didn't make sense to me and I found I really felt like it applied to a lot of things in my life and I thought well if I'm thinking this you know I've got I've got a circle of people around me who are going through similar things you know like we all we all played golf 
like for England together and we all went off to college in America, you know, and there's tons of other people in similar situations. And I just thought, why, you know, like I can't be the only one who feels like this. So it just, it just eventually made sense for me to put that on paper and kind of put it out there and see if, see if people responded to it. Can you answer your own question then? When can someone be considered an adult? <laughs> I think the That's fact right. I'm still it's... writing about the same thing probably shows I haven't answered that question. <laughs> I don't think we change much, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, was it a, a terrific culture shock? I mean, you obviously knew what you were doing, you know, where you're going and everything. But um, in terms, of, I mean, we see it all the time, you know, and we read, you know, we read players coming through that we might never have heard of. And we suddenly read that ex-German player was over um, over in Florida or ex got picked up by Duke or whatever, Texas. Uh, was it a massive culture shock? Um, it it wasn't, it wasn't. Like I still, I was still doing a lot of the same things that I would do at home, like in terms of practicing and, and doing schoolwork, you know, because I'd just been in sixth form before I went to college. So I was used to to studying and to like managing my time with practice and things like that. It was more, I think it was more the other aspect of how you live your life over there versus how you live your life when you come home in terms of like over there, I was in a dorm with, with three other girls and you know, you don't have to, you obviously have to do the things you have to do in terms of going to class and practice, but you don't have to like tell anybody you know where you're going in the evening or you don't have to be back for dinner at a certain time and then like you come home and obviously because I was still living at home then you know it's all of a sudden it feels quite restrictive even though you know like it's I had I had a car and I had like my freedom and stuff but I just found things like that quite strange um and just adapting to to being 5,000 miles away from home um you know it was like I'd if I was at home for for a month I'd be desperate to get to America. Yeah. And then having been in America for a month, all I wanted to do was come home and like go and watch a football game or, or lie on the sofa, you know, like it's just, I suppose we always miss the things that we're, we're away from, but um, it just, it felt like I was living two different lives in a way. And I found that a bit of an adjustment. So I find that, I find that really interesting, Megan, because was there, you know, I think, I think everyone, I don't know if everyone agrees, but I think a lot of people would agree that going to America is is fairly pivotal for development. And I think that it's been quite widely agreed that, uh, you know, the, the regiment there, the facilities there, the coaching there is, is an improvement. Obviously, we don't have that sort of thing over, over in England. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that you wanted to go and do that? You spoke about obviously missing sort of home comforts while you're out there. Did you think about that beforehand or was there more excitement about the, the opportunity? Um, it was mainly excitement. Um, I remember having having a little spell, I guess the summer before I was supposed to go, yeah. when I suddenly thought, you know, should, maybe I should just turn pro now, or maybe I should just stay at home, work on my game at home with my coaches and play in all the big amateur events and really like plan my life around golf, you know, because yeah. I think at that point I knew I wanted to turn pro at some point. And I thought, why, you know, why would I spend some of my time not doing golf if I know that that's what I want to do long term? You know, the thought of, of studying again for another four years yeah. suddenly suddenly threw me off kilter a little bit. Um, but luckily I had sensible parents, so I ended up <laughs> ended up getting through that little wobble. 
No, but I think that it's just human, you know, human, you know, way of thinking, really, isn't it? I mean, completely different kind of example. But I remember having the opportunity to go out to America as, as an eighteen-year-old and, and go and do sort of football coaching, and I was just petrified at the thought of going. I, I, I kind of made any excuse I could because I couldn't drive. Um, I, you know, had never been out of the country without my family, you know, and, and things like that. and. As much as it was a great opportunity, you'd think, um, you know, I, I was too sort of worried to do it. And I came to 21, I got the same offer again, and I had three weeks to make a decision. And I just went for it. Um, and it was the best decision I ever made. But I can, I can just, I mean, a lot of what you said there was was kind of the focus on the goal side of things and, and the decisions behind that, as opposed to to the, the personal side of things and, and whether you're ready. So it sounds like you're, you're always ready to make the jump in terms of no fear of going. It was more a case of, yeah, the indecision between what you want to do in your, in your golf game as opposed yeah. to the personal side. I think um, it's funny because that was what I was had the doubts about was mm. was whether it was right for my golf, and yet the things that I gained, you know, the things that I gained the most from being over there were probably things that had nothing to do with golf. Yeah. You know, in terms of just handling that whole life change of you know of being away and. And having to be disciplined enough to do things away from, like, the England bubble, for example. Of course, um, yeah. And definitely those four years helped me in terms of turning pro and, and being ready for life as a professional that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted beforehand. Um, not necessarily just, like, am I a better golfer or not? You know, it's yeah. like, am I a, a more rounded human able to deal with being a professional golfer i suppose i was going to say it sounds, it sounds like it, it almost makes you more ready to be a professional as opposed to a, a more a, a better technically a better golfer i would say i've spoken to some sort of uh, pros in the past who have spoken about their college career and one one of the pros i spoke to he said that you know the, the biggest difference between playing at college and you know you hear a lot of aspects of you know you play a lot of team golf in college and i missed that but he, he said that it was the having to get up at 5 30 and, and the alarms and, and going to, to the gym then doing nine holes then going to class etc you know it was all laid out in front of you you had coaches on you whereas as soon as you turn professional all of that onus is on you like if you don't want to go and work out or you don't want to go and practice or you don't want to go and hit balls that is completely on you and i know that you will you will have a team around you and you'll have coaches and you'll have you know advisors and stuff like that but ultimately if you don't want to do something you won't do it whereas you can't really get away with doing that at college yeah that's that's completely it and like you know I think it's it's more apparent to me every winter that I spend at home when yeah. I'm like so do I like what's more beneficial for me like going and hitting balls for three hours in in two degrees or <laughs> resting like yeah. and I can convince myself that resting is the way forward whereas you know in America you just go and spend those three hours hitting balls because that's what you know the schedule says that you're doing um and you know, and the, and and the weather and the facilities right are there that you can do that for the winter. Like you can argue, you know, if you if you're back home and you you're, you're in Northampton or whatever wherever you're in the country, that it is easier at two degrees to go right. That's actually not going to be beneficial. Like I can hit balls, but it's actually you know, yeah, it could be a, a wasted session. That's pretty much the reason that I ended up going where I did in America because yeah. I knew that that I wanted to be able to practice in November and December. And it's funny because you take it for granted, obviously, the longer that you're there. And, you know, like right now or for the last few weeks, I still toy with the idea of, of going somewhere to practice in good weather. But 
I can't just go and do that because no. I have to justify the costs of it, you know, and even is there a facility that I can go and use? Like I, I wouldn't be able to just pick somewhere just like that. Um, so they're the things that whenever you're, you're playing golf in college, you kind of, you don't, you don't even consider, you just get on a plane and you go where you go. Yeah, and that's another really important point because I've spoken to to Chris Paisley and Dale Whitnell, and I'm not sure how much of them that you know, but they they both have got bases in Florida now. Um, you know, over the winter they they split their times with England and in America, but they can go out there and practice over the winter. And it's interesting that you say there that you know financially, like they can do it because they earn X amount for finishing wherever they do on a Monday list, even if it's not high up. They have a certain sponsorship that can probably cover it etc um and even just the context right but in, in the ladies game i suppose that you know this ties in quite nicely to the fact of you, your tweet on new year's day about the you know how much you would have lost last year if you didn't have the support of the people you did around you you can't just go and say i'm going to go and live in florida for three months of the year without having the backing and justifying it to yourself it's going to make a huge amount of difference yeah, and like it makes me laugh a little bit when you say it because, you know, it's <laughs> I wish I was in a world where it was that easy and like, you know, don't get me wrong, there's there's a hell of a lot of privileges to playing this very, very fortunate. But like I, I also know that if if I had the money to go and join Lake Nona, you know, and, and get on a plane and, and rent somewhere for, for two months that I'd probably be better prepared for the season ahead of me than if I didn't do all of those things, but I can't do all of those things. So there is, you know, there is always a, a kind of balance point between what, what you can justify and what you can't or what you, you know, can can actually physically, logistically do and what yeah. you can't. And, and some people are able to do that and some people aren't. But I think that's where you just have to, you know trust that golf is a game where where you can kind of get the opportunities when you can yeah and that's the thing and there's a couple of things i want to take from that is one you know do you ever feel as a golfer and, and luckily you are very honest in, in your approach to, to blogs and, and to conversations that you have do you ever feel like you can't moan because people would just tell you how lucky you are like you you, you you've very quickly said there that I know how privileged I am and I understand that I don't think you're just saying that because you feel like you have to I think you generally do believe that but like it's almost like a prerequisite to have to say that to some people because like it's like people think that okay you have a bad day on a golf course and they're like well I don't know why you're worried about having a bad day at a golf course you can go shoot 65 tomorrow and it's fine and it's like well I actually think that if almost the better you are the harder it is to deal with a bad day like I don't go into work and go god you know I was terrible today like I just get on to my nine till five and that's it. I'm done. And tomorrow will be the next day. And if I had a, a slightly average day, it's fine. My, my life won't be over, but you, you have a, an expectation of, and a ceiling of what your golf game looks like. And if you don't reach that, I imagine that's got to be a lot harder on someone of your skill level and ability than it would be for the average person. I don't know if I'm just being harsh to 99% of the population as opposed to 1% that are really talented, but I wonder if there's any thoughts you had on that at all. Yeah, definitely. And, like you said, there's two things there. Like the first thing is I do, I do often feel like I have to caveat a lot of what I say. And it is partly because I want people to know, like, despite the things that I maybe try and highlight, because I like, I like highlighting the realities because I think a lot of people have, you know, the wrong perception sometimes of what, 
life is like for a professional golfer 99% of the time. And I just, I feel like social media should be used to be honest and to yeah. show those things rather than to only show the good things. But I'm also aware that people take that as a, she's just complaining all the time. And like, I've, you know, I'm like completely and utterly addicted to this game. Like I, I could not envisage, envisage myself doing anything else at all. Yeah. And however like down I get about it sometimes, like I wouldn't change it in a heartbeat. Like I wouldn't take that sadness away. Like it just, you know, it just drives me to be better and it's all part of it. Um, but you know, this is, this is the social media world where people will, will dig something out of anything you say. Um, so I do try and try and at least make people aware of that, that side of it as well. Um, but then, yeah, to the second point, it's, I find, I don't know, like I, I was talking about this with my sister the other day because she's just started a new job and like sometimes she's kind of struggling with, is this what I want to do? Yeah. And you kind of go like, that's actually a lot of most people in the world, like yeah. don't know if their job is what they want to do. No, um, and like, I consider myself so lucky to get to do what I love for a living. But I think that does also turn itself into a problem sometimes because like you said, if I have a bad day on the golf course, like I'll take that with me, you know, like overnight or to the next day or to the next week. And I have to work to not do that because it's obviously it's detrimental to, to them what I do next. Yeah. But you know, it's, I feel like it's an inevitable part of, of playing this game for a living because if it's what you love then you know it's obviously going to affect your your mental well-being one way or the other and i think like trying to deny that is probably a mistake yeah and i think that i think it's like you said Eddie, so you have a i think you're very fortunate that you have a one track mind that golf is it for you like you have no other plans and you know exactly what you want to do you know what you want to achieve but that kind of brings a pressure on itself you say like you know if you didn't have the back you lost you know, $31,000 in a year. Like, there's only X amount of years that you can keep doing that depending on the financial <laughs> situation you're in, right? And that is coming from someone that has won something at every level every year that you've been professional. Like, I don't I don't know that anyone's really taken that on board. Like, to me, like, you know, when, when we go through it, like, you won on the Elite Access Series 2016-2017. You won back-to-back -back on the European Tour in 2018-2019 defending a title... Uh, in New South Wales and Jason I'll come on to a bit of that in a bit but then the Rose Ladies series in 2020 and then the Symmetra Tour last year like it's not like you've just been missing cuts week after week and, and you don't know to give up like you're a hugely successful professional player and yet you still have financial concerns that yeah I don't want to make it a, a women's versus men's game thing but someone of in your position as, as a male golfer probably wouldn't have those concerns that you maybe had on, on New Year's Day when you put the tweet out yeah, I think um, it's funny because I've, I've actually thought about that quite a lot over the past like few months or maybe because I've been playing on the Symmetra tour yeah. over the past year. Like I'm not tr I'm not trying to like defend myself or, you know, like push <laughs> my ego on people. But like I I didn't have to go and play on the Symmetra tour and the Symmetra tour is a fantastic opportunity and one that a lot of people would love to be on. But at the same time, I probably could be more secure financially if I'd chosen to stay on the LET. And it's not like 
I saw one tweet actually like there was you know I got a little bit of backlash to that tweet that you're talking about not yeah. not that much yeah, but there was yeah. inevitably one person who said something like somebody makes a huge career gamble and then complains when it doesn't work out <laughs> and I was like it, it made me stop and think because I was like of all the things that I've thought I never considered going to play on the Spetch tour as a career gamble because I knew that whether it went well or whether it went badly, I needed to see how I felt out there in terms of being able to compete. Yeah. And because that is what was going to prepare me the most for the next level, which is where I want to get to. I knew I would take a, a hit financially. Like I, I knew that going in. Um, but it is interesting because I feel like throughout my career, I've always done what I felt like I needed to do to, to push myself further. It's just that in the women's game, I think you have to be prepared to suffer financially to do that if you don't make the sort of immediate jump to the top level. And, and, and that's the thing, right, is, is that to, for it to be hugely financially viable, for it to be as successful as, you know, as much as you can get to, and there's a ceiling on the women's games and, and the finances at the moment, hopefully it's going to increase. But you have to make that decision like okay financially you'd be better off playing on european tour uh you know maybe it'd be nice for you to live in europe or at home or whatever but to get to the lpga you had to go to the metro tour route then you had to go to q school and, and we'll obviously come on to that as well but like if you you know if you could make as much money on on the european tour as i don't, I don't want to just say it's a women versus men thing but uh, you know, if if you could be financially comfortable just being number one European tour, and you know, but you want to push yourself to get to firstly compete against all the best people in the world, which is on the LPGA, and also just it, it just feels like to me like you don't have like people say it's a choice and you made that gamble, but ultimately you have to go down that route because everywhere you've played you've won, like every level you've played at. So it's it's very simply like opportunities and. and like everyone will say, like the, the quickest retort will be play better, right? It'll be it'll be the easiest thing for someone to say. I I could just come in here and just say, well, why don't you just play better, Megan? You know, and and then you'll be on the LPGA. But it's it's about like time of year that you do it, which event you do it in, which opportunity you do it in. Can you do it at you know the four rounds at Q school, eight rounds at Q school, whatever? It's people don't see the intricacies of like you could you've gone back to back on the European tour and you're still having to go to school for european tour like, i don't think people understand the difficulties of keeping cards and especially during a pandemic as well yeah that was a absolutely. very long question i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's okay i um that's the thing like i agree and it's i think a lot of people didn't realize that i'd be going to letq school um yeah. and that you know that was a decision i had to make like if if i was to play on the symmetra tour i was effectively sacrificing my winner's exemption yeah. which is like quite a big sacrifice in a way. Like I'm not just saying, oh, can I keep my card off the back of a few events or whatever? Like, you know, to have a winner's exemption is a lot of people, you know, play their whole careers to try and get that. And like, I, I'm like proud of what I've achieved, but at the same time, like I knew being able to do it on the Symmetra tour would prove something to myself beyond what winning on the LET proved to myself. And yes, I could have played better last year and I wish I had, but it's not like I played terrible. Like you said, no. you know, like the fact that I won on the Symmetra tour has like proved to me, like I said, beyond winning on the LET that I'm 
I'm capable of playing on the LPGA. Like, yes, it hasn't happened yet. And yes, you know, I'm probably going to have to suffer a bit more financially to get there. <laughs> but I actually, I feel more, you know, like more proven to myself that I'm, I'm ready for that and that I made the right decision. Um, so it's just, you know, my, my career's obviously gone a little bit of a, a more wavy route than maybe most people's would have. But, you know, I feel like I'm making myself better every year and that's, at the end of the day, that's what I want to do. Is, so is that because we're, we're now used to seeing the likes of Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, etc.? I'll take the men's game because I, just the majority of, of listeners are going to know, and we'll come on to the women's game shortly. Is that because we are so used to hearing them come out of college and just go bang, bang, bang? Um, you know, and you said this, you said in one of your blogs as well, um, you always hear from the winner. Nobody interviews the 99% of golfers that lose and that golf's a bloody hard game. And it is horrendously hard. I mean, as you know, a, a bit of luck, the roll of a ball, you're not feeling quite right over a shot, et cetera, et cetera. But because the game has progressed so much that we're seeing these people, actually, Batia last night, 19 years old, first run on the Corn Ferry. Um, that's what we're being fed. And so when you look at your record, which I'm looking at now, um, it, like you say, it is progressive. It's very progressive. And as you say, you've gone up the tour, you've gone LET, Symmetra. That's not a disappointing tour. That's not a disappointing, sorry, career. It's just we keep getting these flashes of of the odd person that, that does it that we forget about everybody else that's progressing and, you know, that they're going from. You, you, you talk again about, about, you know, athletes always talk about it, about trusting the process and just seeing that 1%. Ross talked about it last night, seeing that 1% improvement over a certain amount of months. And, and as long as you see that, you're progressing. And do you not think it's, it's suddenly these superstars that come out of nowhere makes us look at what is a progressive card in a lesser way? Yeah, I think so. Or I think, um, I think for me, because I'm quite open on social media, like I maybe hear more of that noise than, than maybe other people who are say who are, who have had the same career as me so far would possibly think like they might, they might think, you know, I'm I'm doing what I need to do and maybe not not notice the sort of other other stories or the other end of the spectrum maybe quite as much as I do. And it's not that I, you know, like I, I believe in what I'm doing and where I'm going and the path that I'm on. I think it's just that I I talk about it more, I suppose. So I'm I'm kind of forced into seeing the <laughs> the other side of it. But like for somebody like me you know, I remember when Justin Rose got to world number one yeah. and I had, I don't know if it was him that tweeted it or not. It might've been, it was probably the Monday Q info account. Cause he always tweets like the, the most sort of motivational uh, stuff for somebody like me. And I had, I had the tweet saved as my background for a little while because it was something like, you know, Justin Rose missed his first, however many cuts as a pro he, he took X amount of years to win on the European tour. He took X amount of, of years to win for the first time on the PGA tour. He took X amount of years to win for the first, his first major. And then finally to, to get to world number one. And that's, that's honestly like a more, I don't want to say a, a more normal route to the top because obviously that's still the 1% of the 1%, but that's kind of how a lot of, a lot of professionals who are 
even 24, 25, 26 and beyond, like they can still see themselves getting to world number one, even if, even if like me, they haven't got their LPJ tour card yet. You know, it's just, it's just believing in what you're doing, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's a tough gig. I mean, I think it's one last year. I think it's one win, two top tens, two top fifteens, and three top twenty-fives. It's tough. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not missing forty-eight cuts, is it? It's. Uh, it's. It's a very hard gig, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, all power to you. I mean, it's um, to come off a season like that. I mean, you obviously know where you are in the rankings as you're going through the year. Do you feel um, not a sense of panic? I don't mean sense of panic, but. Um, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, how much does that affect you as you go towards the end of the year thinking, um, here I am in the rankings, where I need to be? Um, in, in a similar situation that <coughs> I, you talk about Justin Rose, funnily enough, I read a tweet or an interview with him years ago that said even if he was in 50th place on a Sunday, he would play the final round as if he was in contention. And I suspect he doesn't do that now. Um, <laughs> that, but but he probably definitely doesn't do it now. But that sort of thought process um, has to kick you on. And where are you? As you go towards the end of the Symmetra Tour last year, for example, what's your thoughts as, as you look at the rankings and think, you know, this is where I want to be. Can I get there? How do I get there? Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it, it was quite a weird year for me, like timing-wise, because... Obviously, I had a reasonable start to the year. It was a little bit up and down, but I think I saw enough in my game to know I could compete at that level. And having not spent enough time out there previously, like I, I didn't know that going in. So whenever I, I think I had a third place not long before I won, and like I was leading going into the final round. And even though that round didn't go how I wanted to, it's like okay, I know I'm good enough to win out here. Like I. I know I'm good enough to win tournaments because I've done it before. And if I can get into a position where I'm leading, I'm obviously good enough to do that. Um, so then after I won, I then was in that top 10, which is on the Symmetra Tour where you need to be to get your card. You know, I was in that top 10 for for a few more events, but I missed a few cuts because I think, you know, I, I maybe changed my expectation levels and, and put a bit too much pressure on myself, which is easy to do and on a tour like that where the depth is insanely good it doesn't take much to miss cuts and I, I tended to miss a lot of my cuts by one which is never <laughs> never fun um so I then you know inevitably I slipped out of the top 10 at some point so then you you know you go back to that on the outside looking in sort of thing and I think the one thing that that kind of took me through to the end of the year was that I knew I was good enough to win and the whole time I knew that winning again would would get me a place in the top 10. So right up until the last event of the year, it was, you know, can I win? And it sort of, you know, it turned from a couple of top fives will be good enough or, you know, two or three top tens will be good enough to, okay, you need, <laughs> you need to win a tournament. Um, but, you know, the last event of the year, I shot 64 in the opening round and thought, I have to win and, and I'm going to do it sort of thing. Um, and obviously it didn't work out, but I think just having that mindset and that, that clarity of, of believing in yourself and, and being good enough to win on any given week is kind of how I've, I guess, tried to approach things. Um, particularly since, 
I found myself getting more comfortable on the Symmetra tour. Yeah, and I think if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the things that that I picked up on sort of reading your blogs and through was you mentioned that you'd kind of looked at your world rankings and and kind of had to remind yourself of or you were kind of surprised by where you were and I think it you kind of linked it to the fact that you were on the outside looking in and and had a good chance of getting into kind of the Solheim Cup in in 2019 and and then you weren't close to it this time around we hear a lot of people using like Ryder Cup and and Solheim Cup as like motivation is that something that when you when you are sat there watching that at home is that a okay like this does it does it make does it click a switch or is it something that people say to encourage themselves and and force themselves out there because i can never imagine what that actually must feel like watching something knowing that you can do it and and compete at level does does it does it give you a a, a literal kick up the arse if you like or or does it is it just something you say to yourself and then you go and do it afterwards i don't know if that makes sense um yeah i think it's a little bit of both i i vividly remember the 2017 solheim cup I mean, yeah. I say I vividly remember. I don't. I don't remember where it was, but I remember the sort of thought process that it that it kind of kicked in me. Yeah. Because that was that was my first year as a professional, and like I was playing on the Access Tour, which is you know definitely a a lower division of of women's professional golf. But yeah. that was that was where I was, and I knew I was improving um, as a golfer, like week to week, month to month, and I I saw that. 2017 Solheim Cup and I thought like I wanted you know like I I was sort of it was my first year as a pro and I was you know doing my own thing and just kind of getting finding my feet in the professional world but that was kind of the real the real motivation for I want to get to the top of the game like I feel like I can get to the top of the game Um, and I think since then it's more of a I think it's more of a reminder than a motivation now, like, a, you know, yes, I want to be there. um, And I feel like I can be good enough to be there and compete. And certainly seeing now players that I know reasonably well, like watching Leona last year, I really enjoyed because, you know, I played the Curtis Cup with her. And it's like that feeling of, of kind of like shared determination and, and satisfaction and like desperately wanting to beat your opponent i think only team events bring that out um especially of of people with quite quiet personalities um so i think watching her definitely made me i guess remember what what the curtis cup was like and and really want to be part of that that yeah. environment again and, and i'm say. glad you brought that up sorry chase i'm glad you brought that up because i i I speak a lot about the guys that do Walker Cup and spoke to Wills Allosaurus and he had a lot of people on his team that went on to, to have great success already on the PGA Tour. And this was last year before he'd made his kind of breakthrough on the PGA Tour and, and in the majors and things like that. And, and you mentioned there about Leona Maguire and I'm glad you did because that's what I was going to say is that when you see Leona in the Solheim Cup team, obviously you're delighted for her, you're really excited for her. Is there an element of frustration? Is there like a, that could be me? Is is there is, is is there any hint of that at all? Or is it purely like that's excitement and I know I'm good enough because I played in these teams as as I did when I was younger? Yeah, I think it's more the more the second part because I mean there's there's always gonna be a little element of frustration, especially yeah. The older I get, you know, in like Q school this time around hurt more than it did two years ago and, and likewise 
you know, the year before that or whatever. But it is also just a, a reminder of like, I was good enough or I was at that level when we were amateurs. Yeah. And I feel like I've I've continued to get better since then. So it's it's one of those that to me is like the world ranking things. It's a reminder of I don't think that necessarily reflects where I am as a golfer right now and just kind of using some of those things to so I think like almost keep me focused rather than rather than slipping into, you know, like a negative headspace. That's good. Yeah, no, I really like that, and I, I really like the response because I think you know there's been a lot of, of what you said in in your blogs that you, you've mentioned and you mentioned earlier on in here as well that you do feel like you're stepping forward, and you're making big progress every year, and you and you're going in the right direction. And okay, your results haven't necessarily reflected what you may be feeling about your own game, but that's not to necessarily say that's not true. Still, it's just that it it might happen in 2022, right? You know, we've got a whole 11 months ahead of us of, of golf and, and opportunities and and starts and things like that. So I think that's a really good answer. Jason, you wanted to, to jump in with a point there? No, I was just going to say, I, I think you've got the winning point of the Curtis Cup. So um, I don't know how many people have got the winning point of the Curtis Cup and then got on to get the winning point of the Solheim Cup. So It's funny because I think that was um, that was like a race between me and Bronte to get the, <laughs> to get the winning point. And like she, she won five matches out of five that week or however many matches it was. So it's like, you know, you've got that on your CV. Let me have, let me have this, <laughs> this one. I like that. I like that. But that's one of the the subjects we wanted to talk about. I Me, mean, Jason spoke about it before, and uh, maybe I let Jason sort of frame it. But the the US Women's Open has now got a sponsor, uh, first USGA event ever to be sponsored, uh, have a presenting title sponsor, and it's given the prize fund that we would expect to see going forward so it's got a 10 million dollar prize fund um jason i know you sort of wanted to talk about that maybe you'd, you'd be better at framing the question than i am well i, I won't be better if you frame it <laughs> question anyway. um, right another quote from you 2020 supply and demand runs the pay if suppliers were given equal treatment the demand would be much closer than people are willing to accept see i do read it um <laughs> us women's open now worth 10 million uh in, in 2022 uh, the US Open last year was 12.5 million. So that has dramatically altered the, the pay difference. Um, it should hopefully create much more TV, TV sponsorship, uh, TV sponsorship, TV coverage. Hopefully it then means that um, there's a lot more exposure for the women's game. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you had anything to do with it because it only came a few days after you put that tweet out. Uh, I mean, hold on, hold on, Meg McLaren's. You know, if you have that sponsorship, so we'll make the USA for 10 million. Um, massive step forward, mate. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Because it, 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 I know that um, they've been working on it for ages, and that, um, the game, I think the women's game has really has, has taken off, is, is probably too far, but it's progressed so much in the last one year, 18 months, I think. Um, maybe, maybe that the lockdown had something to do with it, and people were, were watching, you know, basically watching any sport that was on television. Um, but you know, what's your reaction to that when that came out? I think, um, I mean, I was, I was shocked to be honest, like in, in the best possible way. Like I didn't, I didn't see that come in. Like I don't, I don't know enough about the, you know, what the USGA do and obviously know Mike Wan and, and what he's done for the LPGA, but to jump from it, cause it was 5.5 million, I think yeah. last year. So to almost double in a year is just, you know, that's like unheard of in, in professional golf. Um, 
so it was you know fully like hats off to him and to what they've done and and obviously the sponsor that they've brought on board and i think it's really cool because like you said the women's game has has come on dramatically over the past couple of years and even like little things that i think most men possibly wouldn't notice and i don't mean that in a you know derogatory way at all but whenever they talk about the men's majors being you know this time or on these courses or whatever on tv the fact that they label them the men's majors now i feel like stuff like that happens far more often whereas a couple of years ago it wasn't even given a second thought and it just you know it might not seem like a big deal but as like a female professional golfer when somebody says this is the last major of the year and you know that you're off to the US Open in a month's <laughs> time like it's just a really you know it just feels like a bit of a kick in the teeth things like that so I think those little things are changing which is huge but what I was going to say is as all of those things have changed the, men, the men's game has just like you know yeah. gone to this whole different level yeah. like and we know part of the reason why that's happened and there's obviously been a lot of you know um a lot of unstable sort of you know um things like dynamics in the game that have that have caused more money to come into it um but so i know this is a long-winded way to make a point but the um the fact that the u.s open purse jumped up that much I think is a really cool thing to see because all of a sudden it's actually quite close to what the men's purse is. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I think we should have equal purses across the board, but to have a major where they're actually relatively close together, I think is quite exciting for the women's game because all of a sudden it doesn't feel like we're still 50 years behind the men's game. You know, it's like, actually we think you're worth just as much and we're going to show the world that you're worth just as much. And I just think that's quite a big, a big kind of statement to make to the golf world. Yeah, and and I think that I think that the way you frame it is perfect, right? I think that one, I think Mike Wan was the perfect person to do it. Obviously, going from from the LPGA commissioner to USGA, and obviously taking that to the the USGA events, that obviously helps. I think that um, you know, just in general, I think like like Jason said, the women's game has come on. I think. And I certainly think I don't know how you feel. I think it's it's a little bit like chicken and the egg. Like everyone says that it can't be equal play, and, I, and I'm glad you said it the way you said it because, again, the very easy retort for someone to say to you is you don't deserve equal pay because you don't generate as much income, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's a lot to do with the fact that you just don't have the platform to show how good you are to get people to be invested in you as as a professional, as a player, as a character. Uh, and we'll come on to that a little bit in you know in a bit. But to me that like and Mike Wams asked this, I think it was on No Lane Up, that what what could you do so that the women's game could be seen on TV so it's not competing against a men's game? Could you start it on a Sunday through to Wednesday and things like that? And he said, Well no, because even the amount of viewers that we get on a Sunday going up against the men's game is more than you're going to get on a Monday or Tuesday night because people are going to work and things like that. So it seems a really, really hard way. And I I don't suppose that you definitely have the answer, but how do you think that the women's game can be represented and given so that people have the opportunity to get invested in the women's game and realise what it is that they're actually meant to be supporting? Yeah, got it. (laughs) We could talk for another hour about that. But 
I think that's why, to me, what he's done or what the USGA have done with the US Open is really exciting because I personally think that's how that's part of how it has to start, right? Yeah. You have to somebody has to jump the gun and elevate the biggest thing that they can in the women's game to almost force everybody else up because you can't go back a hundred years and and put women's sport on the same pedestal as men's sport like we can't do that it's too late and that's the bit that I think a lot of people maybe miss sometimes is that this has been like decades and decades in the making it's not just because people don't want to sit there and watch women's sport like yes they might not want to but a lot of times they don't realize where those you know I don't want to get too deep into this but like they don't necessarily realize where those attitudes have come from like if it's it's subconscious right it is yeah like if you if you pick up a golf magazine you know you just pick the first one off the shelf first of all the first one on the shelf is probably going to be male dominated because of the you know because that's how the the industry is and then that magazine you pick up might have one page of coverage of women's golf so you're probably not even going to know that there's a women's major on in a week's time or yeah. whatever it might be. So you have no interest in, you know, in, in putting it on your TV or sitting down to watch it the way you would, you know, whenever it's the open, you like, you try and scrap all your plans for the weekend because you just want to sit there and watch it all day. start to finish. <laughs> but like, if you, if you never knew that that was on, you're, you're not going to sit down and do it. No. So it's just like, it's little things that add up, which is why I think if they can, if organizations can really elevate the top level of the game, I think it will draw more, more people who are already invested in golf to the women's game. And I think that will have a knock on effect, you know, at all levels. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think, go on, Sorry, Jason. I was just going to say, what you said exactly reminded me again of when we interviewed Hannah. Um, and that she said, you know, we'll take Charlie Hull as an example. So she put up as, um, you know, the, the biggest English English star. And so when you go to a golf, uh, a pro shop, um, you can have virtually what you like of the top men's stuff. It's all there for you. You try and buy something, Charlie Hull shoes or whatever, it's to order only or it's to this. And this type of thing, elevating the status, has to bring everything forward. It'll make, uh, even at grassroots level, golf club committees look at a completely different thing it'll bring younger people into those committees with a with a, a more modern outlook on the game um we discussed about that course in uh, minnesota now offering free play to anybody over eight, under 18 no membership no green fee no anything and i think this is all a part of it and it has to start from the top and uh absolutely i mean this 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 ha- will come forward it will come to europe however long it takes um it can't do. I mean, it's just it's just amazing news, isn't it? I mean, you don't you don't have any qualms about the fact they've got a sponsor or anything, do you? Um, you know, taking it away from tradition. No, I don't. I mean, the I feel like the more controversial one it seemed to be was the the Chevron Championship, which was the ANA, um, and and moving that from the place that it was. And I can understand some of the the criticism leveled at that because. It's one of the few tournaments in the women's game that has, you know, like a a, a prominent history, I want to say. You know, it's not the Masters, but, but people who know about the women's game 
can sort of pinpoint moments of that championship, like carry a web polling out for Eagle yeah. to win. And, you know, to, to lose that seems like a little bit of a, of a self-inflicted wound, you know, but at the same time, I think at this point, at this moment in time, money is, is going to be the driving force behind, behind raising the levels of the game, you know, at, at all levels at, at grassroots and at the top. And, you can't really get away from that fact. You know, it's, you just have to, I suppose, try and compromise perhaps with, with where that money comes from. And that's obviously a whole different conversation, but at least with the, with the U S open, you know, it, it seems, you know, it's not the, I actually don't, I can't think off the top of my head what the sponsor is now, but it's, you know, the U S women's open presented by X rather than just the, you know, they haven't changed the name of it as such. Um, no, it's not so it's just American trying to find course, that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's trying to find that balance, but also being realistic about, you know, about how you how you drive change as well. So I, I was gonna I was gonna say. So in twenty twenty nine, I think I can't remember the course. They're, they're going to play the women's and the men's back to back. Pinehurst, I think. Pine, it is. It's Pinehurst twenty twenty nine. Yeah. Um, which leads me on to sort of what they, you know, you picked up on one of your things about the Victoria Open. Uh, when Minwoo Lee and Minji Lee were, were, you know, in contention yeah. in the various tournaments. We've had the Scandinavian Mixed, which was a fantastic success here last year, when obviously men and women were playing on the same course at the same time. Alice Houston finished third. Um, you know, the, the game is there, um, and it's not, you, you know, it's they're not necessarily separate sports. Like you say, you know, everybody's watching men, you know, less people. It's... it's they are the same. It's just about getting it in front of the public. And, and things like the uh, Scandinavian mix for me are absolutely crucial in, in getting it there. Um, maybe you're playing it this year. <laughs> I actually played in it last year. I didn't play very well, but I did play in it. Um, but I would... oh, you did. Sorry. Yes, you did. Sorry. I'm, I'm looking. Okay, so I, to be I honest, that. to be I honest, my that. brain probably doesn't even know that I played it. So I was probably still in America in my head. But um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I completely agree with you. I do think... I think it's a really hard one to be honest mix events like I I'm probably more on the fence about it than people would maybe assume um only because I think it's incredibly difficult to make a setup reflect fairly or to test fairly across the two genders like I just you know it's the same sport but it's also different you know and you have to take into account like spin spin rates and like pin positions based on what club is being hit in and all these things but that that's personally why i think the vic open works so well in australia because you're playing the same courses but two separate tournaments but at the same time like i've i've thoroughly enjoyed both of the 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 scandinavian mixed and the jordan mixed open that we that we played as well um i think it's really entertaining as a player and then must be as a fan to kind of see like just like how the same sport can be played in so many different ways and you don't necessarily see that as much on like the men's tour because so many of them hit it long like yes you're always going to have you know somebody pop up who who is a bit shorter but for the most part it's you know you're watching the same thing time and time again and I think to get that variety you know it's it's interesting as a fan 
and it's also a bit more representative of you know of golf clubs across the country and across the world isn't it yeah that's I, interesting because I... so, so, sorry tom that's really <laughs> interesting because i automatically assumed that, 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 that no genuinely i automatically assumed that the the Scandinavian mix, which, which I was fully invested in for four days this year. Um, I knew you brought up the other one because you were second, so that's cheating, <laughs> right? Um, but um, I automatically assumed that, 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 you know, you'd be all over it and say it's a great advert for the sport. And, and you actually, yeah, you, do, you do make a fair point. There, there is also the negativity, exactly what you say. When you see somebody driving it 360 yards off that tee, there is that again depending on the viewer type and their his mental health um there is that view that oh well yeah they've put a you know 60 yards in front and uh and yeah i, I never actually thought like that so yeah fair play I, I think also and and i think it comes from a good place like the mixed events and i, and I can see the the positive outcomes Attention. of it and, and yeah the intentions of it but i also think that it does detract from the ultimate goal which is for the women's game and the men's game to be separate, but just the women's game to be at, at the at the level that we want it to be at, right? And I think that 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 there's a very thin line, I think, Megan, between using the mixed events to help push that and and to thinking that the mixed events is enough. Do you understand what what I'm saying with that? Yeah, I'm, and I'd completely agree with that. And I think it's like it's it's a positive for the men's and the women's game. Like in, I don't know if in the short term is the right way to describe it, but like the Jordan event, I remember getting getting to see a breakdown of some of the some of the figures, and, and the the Challenge Tour got more media exposure that week than they would have on a normal week or on an average yeah. week. So there's, I think there's a perception that it's only good for the women's game and it doesn't necessarily add anything to the men's game, but I don't think that's right. You know, I think that's. I think it benefits everybody, but I also think it attracts possibly more negativity than than it needs to. Because like you said, there's always going to be people that say, well, you're not playing off the same tees, so it's not fair. And to be honest, I, I haven't experienced this, but I would imagine some of the male players would probably share that view. Yeah. Like I, I've, I've not experienced that at all. Like I've only had positive interactions with the male players in those events but if some of the fans think that then i would imagine that you know if somebody if a guy shoots 20 under for the week and loses out on five grand to a girl who shoots 21 under for the week you know he might be a little bit put out because he might think well you know you've got to start 100 yards ahead of me you know and yeah. i don't i don't necessarily agree with that but I understand where that would come from because you're you're kind of playing a different tournament, even though you're playing the same tournament. Which is why, again, I think something like the Vic Open is the right balance because you get all the benefits of the men and the women, women being in the same place at the same time, and seeing those contrasts and how the game's played, and seeing also how similar the ability level is. But you don't have that that slightly odd dynamic of of being in different places yeah no i completely agree and i think coming back to an earlier point you made about the investment right and and it's only this year that they're i think they're adding kind of strokes gain data or at least more statistical data uh to the lpga and maybe the llt as well 
but it's you know us as like people we follow betting stuff each week right and, and we dive into all these kind of what strokes going approach they hit last week and it's really hard to get invested in a women's game from that respect unless you're there or unless you can watch every event in person or you're really heavily involved in the game is you, you've got greens in regulation percentage and you've got driving accuracy and how many fairways are hit i know that that the women are very very accurate and, and a lot of that is you know what the foundations are based on but i don't know what strokes gains you had last week and and people like there is a lot of nerds out there and a lot, a lot of golf nerds that love that <laughs> data yeah and and it must be like for me if, if i was in your position i'd be like well i want i want strokes gain approach data to be able to yeah, I, I don't know i don't quite know Honestly, how much you get I'll but t- i'll tell you a little story so yes i think it was yesterday i was working on some of my goals for this season yeah and like proximity is is one of the things that i wanted to target and i i wanted to have a look at I think it was Morikawa. I wanted to, just out of curiosity, because I knew he was leading that category, I wanted to see what he was. And I ended up down this rabbit hole. And, like, I've I've looked into stats a lot. So I know the PJ Tour gives, like, more information than you can possibly, like, ever need. Yeah. But I, I've never been on, like, a player's profile page before and, like, seen the breakdown of stats there. And it's, like... <laughs> Every single thing you can ever think of and everything that you couldn't think of as well is there with like the relevant percentage or like footage or whatever it might be. And then like their ranking for the season in in that area. Yeah. And I was just I was just looking at it going like, how could you not get better if you had access to that? Like as from a player's perspective, like you you can see every single facet of the game. And where you stack up against the people you're playing against every single week. Like, how can you not use that information to your advantage? And obviously, the flip side of that is if you don't have that, you're a little bit stabbing in the dark. Um, and this is where they, they have introduced some strokes gain stuff on the on the LPGA. And it's I know it's still a work in progress, but I remember when they were talking about it and when they announced it, you know it's not just the player's perspective like you guys are saying like from sports betting and and previews and the media and the analysis you can do like before during and after an event it actually adds to it like exponentially and it's it's things like that that i think the kind of general public possibly don't quite appreciate so much because they just they just watch the products that that's presented to them and they don't necessarily realise all the things that go into making that product what it is. I think it's even as basic as like the the Rolex ranking site compared to the OWGR site. Like it is <laughs> so much more difficult to navigate. Like if I just wanted to go for your results year by year, it's not as easy as when you just type in one person's name on OWGR, <laughs> click their name, and click from 2021 down to 2006. Right? It's it's not as it's quite as easy as that. And it is there is the stuff there, but it's nowhere near. And like you said there, like I can go and see what Luke Liss's rucks rough proximity from 220 <laughs> yards is if I want to go and do that. And maybe there's um paralysis by analysis for some of them i had a player on that said that it, it absolutely killed him every time he logged onto the pga tour site because he saw he was 204th in strokes game passing right? i'm sure it can have a negative effect but like you say it's very clear to them how to get better they don't have to do anything to get that data it's not it's not down to them to do it it's it's recorded for them 
they can just log on and take it. And, and like you say, I mean, me and Jason have, have tried to make a, you know, a concerted effort to actually get more women's games previews on. We talk about the majors when we can and, and do the previews that we do. But we can break down every event on the PJ and European Tour from a strokes game perspective, from a course correlation perspective, from everything so easily. And it's not that easy for the women's game. And, and when it is... It would just be, there's people desperate out there to literally just throw money away on anything. Like if there's if there's a ball moving, they'll bet on it. So if it's it doesn't matter if it's the women's games, the men's games, or whatever it is, it could be softball. Like no no one, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just as long as you can get the data, they'll back it. And I think that is when I saw that, I thought you know, immediately someone's going to make a YouTube show pre- like previewing every LPG event next week yeah. next year. Do you know and what I mean? Think I think it's that basic. Just like without without obviously wanting to take up hours and hours of your time like when, when <laughs> Don't you never apologize the, for that <laughs> when you go back to the supply and demand kind of narrative that i've kind of touched on in some of my blogs like people just see the you know less people watch women's golf so yeah you're never going to have the same purse and they don't whether it's through like lack of awareness or understanding or just like not knowing you know i'm not not trying to knock everybody on the head for for what they say but they don't realize all the things that go into the supply part of that argument or the demand part of that argument sorry like it's not just do i want to watch golf you know yes or no like there's so many there's so many parts to it and the men's game is growing and growing and growing in all these other areas and the women's game is like fighting for its life to try and keep up you know and it's moving in the right direction of course but that's that whole kind of the stats the stats angle i think really highlights just how big the gap is in some places and i'll be completely honest like if you'd have asked me 10 years ago why i thought there was such a gap between the men and women's game and purses i would have just said what what the typical person says they don't they don't bring in as big of an audience and so they don't get paid as much. Like that would be a naive 18 year old person speaking that's not looked into it every week for the past 10 years. When you start to delve deeper into it, like you said, it is I can't go and get the same stats. So I can't, I immediately am turned away from my interest because it's not available to me. If I want to watch the next LPGA event, I can't. Like I know they're putting yeah. some Sky Sports <laughs> exactly. are trying. Like Sky Sports are putting some events on YouTube, and then when they put, when they dare put one on a Sunday against you know the European Tour coverage or the PJ Tour coverage, they get why is the men's going on the red button? Put the women's yeah. on the red button because well, you know it doesn't really matter how they do it as long as it's available, and it, it's just they almost shoot themselves in the foot because they put it in over the top of the men's game so that people have that easy thing to mode. If it was available on the red button, anyone that wanted to watch it would watch it on the red button. I don't know quite whether that's the right way to approach it. I, I don't yeah. get involved in that. Do you know what I mean? But the fact that when it is available on YouTube and you can watch every single hour of coverage, you then have a gauge of, okay, what is the demand for this? How many people yeah. do view this? And how many, if you don't have that available, you'll, you will just never know. Right. And, and I think that's basically what we both just spoke about there. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, I've kind of got myself into frustration sometimes because people will ask me, you know, what do I think needs to change? And like, the problem is, I think, that it it takes an actual effort from a lot of people you know like it's yeah. it's an effort 
for you to find the stats that you need to find to write a preview for an event yeah. whereas it's, it's not for the men's game like if a journalist wants to come and cover it a women's <coughs> event they might have to do that off their own back and not get paid but it's something what, that will help the women's game in the long run but like as individuals you know should you have to go out of your own way to help the women's game you know that's like a that's a whole different question isn't it and it's it's hard if if people have to kind of take personal responsibility because a lot of people have to do that to actually make a change and and, that, and that's the same with everything right i think that, that that there's individuals that are asked how they feel about going to different events and different tours and things and i don't really want to go into that but it's all the onus is always on the individual why are you not doing that why why are you deciding not to go there why are you going to go to the pga why are you going to go to whatever it shouldn't be down to one person to have to make the change. It's a collective have to have to do it. And I'm going to give one last sort of leaving question because otherwise, like you say, we'll, we'll speak for another hour and, and we're going to have to do this again. Um, and but so there's a Netflix documentary coming out, right? And and everyone wants to talk about it, and and I do want to talk about it. I think it is exciting to an extent. Um, and the list of players that they got on there were great. I think there's there's one amateur Nakajima's on there as an amateur, and, and generally speaking, it's the very best available players that they could get. So they, they, the biggest thing was how many of the top twenty players they got, and that was their exciting part. To me, for that to be really successful, and the most interesting elements of Drive to Survive that I liked, which they always keep comparing it to, was that I didn't know about the the, the lower ranked drivers, right, and the ones that are trying to fight for a seat and trying to keep their cars. So why not give me the golfer that's trying to make ends meet? Why not give me, you know, everyone, you referenced Monday Q Info earlier, everyone loves what he puts out there because it is so eye-opening to what, you know, people have to go through to make it to the top. Give me a program where I can see the difficulties that the women have to go through in the game. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, are you really frustrated that the men have got a documentary and the women haven't? But... To me, again, it's back to that kind of chicken and the egg thing. There was a Netflix documentary coming out in June 2022 about 14 players across the Ladies European Tour and the LPGA. People will tune into it. Everyone will watch something on Netflix. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's on Netflix, people will watch it. Then you've got, then again, you'll gauge the demand of people that are actually interested in women's golf, which is what you need to know. And then people can get invested. Like, we're invested in Megan McLaren because we've read your blogs, we've followed you on Twitter, we've followed your career it's not as easy for everyone else to be invested in you like, i can't say to my 17 year old sister you should follow megan mclaren right because she doesn't actually watch golf at all but if i said to her right there's a golf documentary out on netflix please go and watch megan mclaren she'll get massively invested in, in what you do follow your results and things like that so do you think that there should be i guess the easier answer is yes but do you think it would be <laughs> that's how to wrap up the podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think like is, is there a frustration there? Like, if this happens, this could be a really monumental leap forward to do that instead of just giving it all to the men who are already making a lot of money. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I think, um, I suppose it depends. And, like, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I suppose it depends who's, who's like, driving the whole the whole thing. Like, I, I know yeah. Netflix is to a point, but, you know, where are they looking for their revenue from? And because to us, it... it it does seem like you know what we we know quite a lot about the best players in the world already yeah. and like as a golf fan 
like it's going to be interesting you know like I'll I'll watch it and I'm quite excited by it and I think it's cool that golf is getting that treatment because golf obviously isn't typically a sport that that would kind of make it into the you know like the the most popular um kind of entertainment platforms but there is so much more to golf than and I know like F1 would have you know there's F2 and there's other other kind of levels to it as well but I think professional golf even at the highest level is about so much more than what happens to the best 25 or 30 golfers in the world like absolutely yeah it's brilliant to see players getting their invitations to the masters but like what about the guy who is 51st in the world ranking yeah or what about the guy who I don't know was in the top 10 or I don't know, qualified for their first Masters last year and is now slipped out of the top 1,000 in the world ranking because there will be somebody like that. And I think they're they're the stories that are interesting to us as golf fans, but also that I think will interest non-golf fans more or draw non-golf fans into the sport. That, because that's it's, the difference, yeah. It's like golf is a sport that's like so reflect, reflective of life, you know, and... I know it's a cliche and, and maybe we just say this because we're golfers, but you know, it's, it's great when you're successful and it's interesting to see all the things that go into being successful. But like even, you know, outside of the top 30 players in the world, there's probably more struggles than, than there are successes. 100%. And I think that's, that's the fascinating part for everybody. And, and that's the thing is that like, I, and I don't want to. Pick, I'm just picking this one name out of anybody. I'm. I don't anticipate learning anything about Justin Thomas that I didn't already know. Like <laughs> that he's got to be so guarded about what he says and what he does, right? And and and, and that's fine. I get that. Like that's, a, that's part of being a professional. That's part of you know media obligations, etc. But I can't anticipate. Like we didn't learn anything new really about Lewis Hamilton in Drive to Survive. We learned more about Alex Ocon and and, and people like that and and Charles Leclerc and people that were making their way up as opposed to the guys that were already at the top of the thing. So even in even in the great example that they gave of Drive to Survive, it it still wasn't a massive insight into the very top people. It's quite interesting to see the race directors, etc. But you mentioned like the people that are just on the bubble, like Chesson Hadley was like one hundred and twenty fifth on the FedEx Cup. Like he had to hold him one to to take Justin Rose's spot of, of his card, right? And Justin Rose doesn't need a PJ Tour card, but and it means a lot more Chesson Hadley. And I think they cover it really well for that one week. And then you just don't hear anything. You don't see anything. Like I, there was there was a YouTube documentary of, 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 I think they followed about four or five Cornsbury Tour guys or Web.com guys at the time. I think Callum Tarram was on it, someone that I know. Um, and they were great, but it was like a four-part series of 15 minutes on YouTube. And I didn't know about it until someone told me. So there was no, there was no press about it, right? And like you say, I think the, the nail on the head, and I think... The final point, unless Jason's got any questions that he wants to ask before you go. Um, the, the nail on the head is getting non-golf fans to be golf fans. Like, I don't need this documentary to love golf anyone that I do. I spend <laughs> six, seven days a week thinking and talking about golf on Twitter, on blogs, on whatever, right? That I'm not going to get anything. I'm going to enjoy it. Of course I'm going to enjoy it. Like you said, I'll enjoy it. And there'll probably be something I didn't know about Justin Thomas that I might learn. But there is so many good stories out there that I think are going to be completely untold. Um, I know Monday Q Info's got one coming out, and that's great, but 
yeah, I think I think ultimately, like I said, I think that like it goes back to the demand aspect. If there was a let's follow fourteen let touring professionals for X amount of months, they'll go. Do you know what? They've got it really tough. Like I understand now why Megan McLaren says what she says on Twitter. I know that it's not just she needs to play better. I know that she's not just moaning. And I, and I hate <laughs> using the men versus the women's thing on, on the podcast because it tees up people to go, there she is again making the comparisons. It's not you, it's me. Yeah. So if anyone does do that, that's my fault. <laughs> but I think but, like, that's... Do you know what I mean? Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, but no. That's, that's absolutely right. Like, we're, we're all like golf addicts on yeah. here. So like, why not have something that will make you as a golf addict, learn something that you didn't know, yeah. you know, like there's such a huge opportunity there. And whether that's the guys on the bubble or the mini tour players, or it's the women's game, they're all things that could be done that I think would, would drive more interest than, than what they have picked. But, you know, I'm sure yeah. Justin Thomas doesn't think that. No, of course he doesn't. No, oh, absolutely mind not. You, Bryson, Bryson basically said that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he said, I don't, I'll <laughs> give them the sense. chance to, to tell their <laughs> stories and I don't need to kind of thing. But um, no, I, I get it. Like, I, I, I completely understand. And, you know, luckily for us, you know, me and Jason are very fortunate to have someone like yourself and we've had maybe lesser known professionals. I mean, like to, to us, it's like mind blowing that like, so we had Kevin Strillman on, who's a top 50 player in the world, has been on the PJ Tour for however many years, 15, 14 years or whatever. There's people that will just never know who Kevin Strillman is, even if they know about golf. And he gives you a great insight of his career because he doesn't have to be so guarded. He doesn't his his life isn't out there every single week on the PJ Tour news and whatever, golf weekly, golf monthly or whatever. And and that's not to say that's detrimental to them, but I think that there's just so much more like we're fully invested in the people that we've interviewed and spoken to because we've got an insight into their life, right? Like we're gonna follow your results every week. Like and it's as simple as doing an hour and a half podcast, which is longer than you probably thought you were coming on for. But it, it's yeah, I sorry about that. <laughs> but it to me, like we've seen it firsthand. Me and Jason have seen it both firsthand. How easy it is to get invested in someone if you put the effort in. Like if we reach out to you and you respond to us, and I think there's there's certainly an element of people that aren't so like receptive to doing these sort of things as well. Um, some people that just won't even see the messages because they don't control their their social media whatever but that's a completely different subject but there, there is if you're given the opportunity and you take it and someone listens to this podcast and goes i really enjoyed that then you you know you've had a chance whereas if people don't do that on a documentary or a sky coverage or whatever then you do not have the chance to show what you can do i think i'll put a bow in it there because otherwise i'll just go on to every more different uh you know questions and answers and I will get myself into trouble probably by saying something I shouldn't. But um, Megan, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've been an absolute delight. Um, we wish you very best for, for 2022 immediately, obviously, and in the future as well. And uh, we look forward to doing it again soon. Uh, thank, thank you both so much. I, I really enjoyed it. Like I've said, I'm, <laughs> I'm very much addicted to golf. So I could, once people get me on a podcast, they're like, God, we, uh, <laughs> we need that 40-minute Zoom, Zoom time limit. But, <laughs> yeah. but no, thank you both. No, 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 thank no, you're you very right, much. You're welcome. I mean, I had another 15 questions, but I mean, that's why we do a two-parter. Yeah, maybe so. we could do maybe we could do another one because I think there is loads more to cover. I really, really do. Um, and you know, to, to just say, if anybody wants to read, it's not necessarily just about golf. It's about life, and um, yeah, it's a uh, Meg's blog, uh, golf in your head. 
um, started in 2015. And uh, I hope I hope you keep posting, Megan, because it's um, it gives us fascinating. I mean, thanks for coming on. Obviously, but it gives us a fascinating insight into into how you feel. And I think you say um, in one of your blogs, and we'll end it like that. That's the way golf and life work. So, yep. um, yeah, yeah. Thanks that's very much for your time. Um, I, I'd love to have covered much, much more, but you'll be here all night. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do it again. Good, Megan. Just quickly, what are you going to concentrate on more this year? Is it the Symmetra or the um, LET? Yeah, I'll play. I'll play more on Symmetra this year. We'll see see how things go at the beginning, but that's that's the plan for now. Well, if we don't there speak to you again, very best of luck for the season. We'll be following. Thank you very much, guys. Megan, thank you very much. Thank you.